The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today's topic is a Scottish road trip, and joining me, they seek him here, they seek him there, they seek that green hat everywhere, is our friend, travel writer David M. Addison. Hello, Tom. What's that you said about a hat? <laughs> a green hat? <laughs> Always a pleasure to join you, David. And today the subject's going to be Exploring the Snow Roads, your new book, about the Snow Road Scenic Route. So, I have to ask, what was it that first attracted you to the Snow Road Scenic Route? <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that, Tom. It was you who first suggested it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was already embarked on writing a sequel to the SWC 300 when you and Julie suggested it. By the way, that other book's identity, which I'm still in the process of writing, shall remain secret at the moment. Look, this may not sound the best reasons for writing a book, but one of the things that appealed to me about writing The Snow Roads is that it is short. I have to say, I found the SWC rather exhausting. It may be a hundred and miles shorter than the NC500, but there is so much more to see from a historical perspective. You can hardly go a mile before coming across something to write about, a castle or a stately home or a stone circle or a standing stone. All of this meant it took some time to visit and to write. I think I'm correct in saying we made four separate trips down to the southwest, staying in different parts. Another thing in its favour is that the snow road's route is linear, as opposed to being circular, like the NC500, so that when we ran out of time to visit places, we were able to mop them up, so to speak, on our way back. However, so as not to confuse readers, I wrote the book as if I'd visited them as we were heading north. So, by comparison, at a mere 90 miles, as well as going through a much more sparsely populated area, like the NC500, it did not seem nearly so daunting a challenge to write this book. That said, as I did, with both its exploring predecessors, I deviated from the route to explore places that piqued my interest. And I'm really glad I did, because I came across some interesting things. I couldn't say how many more miles it had to the trip, but they were easily doable from our base, wherever that happened to be. But apart from all that writing business, 
I was eager to do the trip for its own sake, for the mountain scenery in the Cairngorms National Park and the beauty of Royal Side. I've been to both before, several times in fact, and I relished the thought of seeing them again, like meeting old friends you haven't seen for quite a while. Now the title of your book certainly suggests a wintry environment in this famous part of Scotland. How much snow could the visitor really expect to see when they're there? I don't know. That's, that's very hard to say, Tom. It certainly used to be a harbinger of winter when it was announced on the news bulletins that the Cockbridge to Tomantal Road was closed due to snow. Since the route includes the highest main road in the UK and there's not just one, but two ski centres, you should expect to see some snow during the winter. Indeed, that's what skiers and snowboarders hope for. However, winters tend to be milder these days than they used to be, and it's a sign of the times that both ski centres use snow machines to top up what nature provides. However, if you avoid the winter months and explore the route when the attractions are still open, normally until the end of October, you'd be very unlikely to encounter as much as a snowflake. Actually, on the subject of the Cockbridge to Tomital Road, I discovered something really surprising that I did not know before. It all came to light in 1999, when Terry Wogan criticised Aberdeen Council on Radio 2 for failing to keep the road open. Outraged locals were quick to point out that it wasn't the council's responsibility, but that of the Tom and Towel postmistress, Mrs Mackay. All she was equipped with was a shovel with a silver handle. I mean, once you realise that, is it any wonder that the road becomes blocked so easily? Listeners to Wogan's show also rushed to Mrs Mackay's defence. They said she was doing the best she could. And indeed, was so dedicated to her task that some claimed to have seen her out with a shovel as early as June. And remember this too. She was doing this as a service to the community after she had finished her day job, posting people's mail and dishing out pensions. To the best of my knowledge, she is not retired. You might like to keep your eyes open for her, when you are on that stretch of road. Well, David, the snow roads are, of course, situated in an area of Scotland which has a great deal of history behind it. What kind of historical tales did you discover when you were out on your travels? Oh, Oh, dear me. You're you're dead right there, Tom. This area is steeped in history. Um, Problem is, where to start? Well... Coming from the south, as we did, the first thing we came to was the world-famous Mikalauer Hedge near Beargowrie, the longest and highest hedge in the world. It's a third of a mile long and a hundred feet high. It was planted in 1745 by Robert Murray Nairn before he and his men set off to fight for Bonnie Prince Charlie at Culloden. They never returned, and the hedge was allowed to grow in their memory. 
actually, this landscape was the location for some significant events in both Jacobite rebellions. I'd never really thought about it before, but on my travels I discovered that the rebellion of 1715 actually kicked off in Braemar, actually where the Invercold Arms now stands. The date was September the 6th. It was there that John Erskine, the 23rd Earl of Mar, a.k.a. Bobbing John, because of his tendency to change sides all the time, raised his standard for King James VIII, otherwise known as the Old Pretender. In what some saw as a bad omen, the gilt ball at the top of the flagpole unaccountably detached itself and fell to the ground like a decapitated head. And maybe it was a sign. We all know how it ended. But I suppose the most obvious reminder of the Jacobite, Jacobite days is, uh, is Corgarth Castle, which you'll find eight miles west of Strathdon on the A939. It's currently in the care of Historic Environment Scotland. This was the first time I'd seen it and I was immediately impressed. Very, very striking. It is situated in the middle of a featureless moor and it's recently been whitewashed. You can't miss it. As you drive along the road, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It consists of a tower house and star-shaped defensive walls like Fort George and Braemar Castle. At the time, those star-shaped walls were considered the very latest thing in castle defence. Being in the middle of a moor, you might be forgiven for thinking that hardly anything happened here. But you would be completely wrong. In fact, the castle had a very troubled history, which I go into in, in the book, but uh, I won't go into here. I'll just say that it was converted into a barracks in 1748, in order to police the anti-Highland culture measures put in place by the Hanoverians in the aftermath of Culloden. And that's how Historic Environment Scotland presents it to the visitor today. It gives you a pretty good idea of what it was like to be a redcoat soldier living in the castle at that time. Actually, having said that, the place I found most interesting of all from those times, and it's a rather special one, is the Scallon Seminary near Chapelton, just a few miles out of Tomintal. I'd never heard of it before we set out on our exploration of the route. And may I say, that's the great thing about travelling these routes, the, the joy of the serendipitous discovery. The Scallon Seminary was actually the second one in Scotland. The first was on Aileen an island on Loch Morar. It was, destroyed, it, it was destroyed in 1716 after the putting down of the 1715 rebellion. It's situated on a remote part of the Glenlivet estate under the protective wing of the Catholic Duke of Gordon who was a staunch Catholic. The first seminary was made of turf and founded by Bishop James Gordon in 1717. It may 
have been hidden amongst the hills and the heather, but it was no secret from the government troops who kept harassing it, especially in 1726 and 1728. The first seminary to be built of stone was in 1767 by Bishop John Geddes. It was enlarged in 1738, but more or less raised to the ground in 1746 after the Battle of Culloden. It was rebuilt in 1788, bigger and better, most notably with the addition of another story. During its existence, and the prescribed years of Catholicism, 64 heather priests, as they were called, were nurtured there. It's under the care of the Scallon Association, who initially saved the building from collapse and then subsequently set about restoring it. It's open to the public throughout the year. On the ground room, in the centre of the building, is Bishop Geddes' room, while to the left is the big room, where guests and visitors were made welcome. You can also see where Bishop Hay slept in a box bed in, a, in an alcove in the corner. The boys slept in the attic and during the day they studied. Now just listen to this. Latin, Greek, French and Hebrew. But that was just the languages. They also studied geography, chronology and rhetoric. Can you imagine that today? Kids today would have a fit. And what's more, I haven't said anything about them having to get up with the lark or having to take a dip in the nearby Crombie Barn, summer and winter, before breakfast. And that was porridge, by the way. There was the occasional bit of meat, but it was mainly porridge for breakfast, porridge for lunch, and porridge before bread. <laughs> no, bed. Well, I suppose they did have some bread as well. Who would be a heather priest? Not me. Now, as many will know, the area around Braemar, Ballater and Balmoral has a long-standing connection with royalty. Would you say that it retains that link today? Oh, most definitely. Oh, absolutely. As everyone knows, the Queen comes to Balmoral every year for her summer holidays, and Prince Charles regularly comes to Burke Hall, which is on the estate for his. He inherited the house from the Queen Mother. In fact, it was there that he self-isolated in March after he contracted the coronavirus. As most people know, Crathy Kirk is where the Queen worships, when she is staying at Balmoral, as did Victoria before her. It's also where Princess Anne was married in 1992. Readers might be interested to know that the royal connection with Balmoral came about by accident, really. What happened uh, was that in uh, 1847, Victoria and Albert were holidaying on the shores of Loch Lagan, where it was constantly raining. Meanwhile, Victoria's physician, Sir James Clark, informed them that his father was recuperating at Balmoral under sunny blue skies. Albert decided that sounded more like the thing, and fortunately for him, a vacancy had recently arisen for the lease of the castle. Not so fortunate, however, for the previous tenant who had choked and died on a fishbone, thus creating the vacancy. 
Anyway, in 1852, Albert, who had very deep pockets, bought the estate as a present for Victoria. When Victoria saw the house for the first time, she thought it was pretty, but small. To accommodate their growing family, the house was demolished and the present mansion in the Scots baronial style was built to replace it. After she was widowed, Victoria spent a great deal of time here in seclusion, in her widow's weeds. So, to sum up, it started with Victoria and the present royal family has been coming to Balmoral ever since. Charles and Diana spent their honeymoon here and it was also where their sons were told of her death. In actual fact, though, Balmoral's royal connection goes back as far as Robert the Bruce, who built a hunting lodge on the estate. But the royal connection on this side as a whole goes a lot further back than that, back to Malcolm III in the 11th century, in fact. He built Kindrochet Castle in Braemar, of which nothing now remains, although the remains of its successor, the 14th century stone castle, can still be seen and visited. Robert II was a frequent visitor between 1371 and 1388, when he too came on hunting expeditions like Robert the Bruce. So that was the start of it, and the royal family has been coming to Balmoral ever since. So as you can see, the royal connection with Deeside goes back a long, long way, and it's likely to continue to do so for the foreseeable future. You must have met some interesting characters on your journey on the snow roads. Are there any that you would particularly like to mention? Yes, well, uh, actually, the the person who sticks out most in my memory is um, Andrew McThomas, the 19th chief of Clan McThomas. We happened to bump into him when we visited the Coxdale, where the clan holds its gatherings every three years. Andrew gave us a guided tour. I've got to tell you the story behind the Coxdale because it really is very interesting. So, the story goes that in 1635, the men of Athol were collecting their dues, the rent, or for those who were unable to pay with hard cash, keen, payment in kind. There was a poor widow who was scraping a living from half a dozen hens for their eggs and every so often a sacrificial victim from the pot. She also had a rooster who made his own contribution to her livelihood, such as it was, by fathering chickens. The taxmen, who were notorious for taking more than their due, didn't give a jot for the poor old woman's impoverishment and commandeered the lot, stuffed the live birds into a sack and left the old woman to her fate. Desperate, the Kailach appealed to the great Macomie Moor, a.k.a. Ian Moore, 7th Chief of Clan MacThomas. Hastily, he assembled a handful of henchmen and they set off in pursuit of the heartless men of Athol. They caught up with them at the Chlachnachoyach. Speakers of Gaelic, pardon, I sincerely beg if I haven't got that quite right. Um, right, so anyway, they demanded the return of the poultry. 
When they refused, Ian Moore, with a single mighty blow of his claymore, separated the leader's head from his shoulders. Then he and his men set about the rest. A moment later, three more of the Earl's men lay dead amongst the heather. The survivors fled for their lives, casting aside their weapons in their haste. Meanwhile, the hens emerged from the sack, and the cockerel, delighted to see the light of day again, flapped as far as his feeble wings would take him onto the top of the boulder. From this lofty perch, he crowed lustily to celebrate his and the hen's freedom. His celebration was short-lived, however. He and his common-law wives were recaptured, returned to the sack, and taken back to the rightful owner. As I said, it was a bit of luck bumping into the chief, but there is one person I do regret not meeting on the trip. And who was that, David? Well, when I was in Tom and Tull, not popping into the post office and seeking an interview with Mrs Mackay. She must have some very interesting tales to tell about her hardships, trying to keep that road open in the teeth of blizzards. She's some woman. I'm sure the readers would love to have heard those tales. Sadly, we were already running late on a pretty tight time schedule. I also reckon she'd be far too busy to speak to me anyway. Yes, in hindsight it seems a pity you didn't get the chance to meet her, but perhaps you can call on the next time you're in the area. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good idea, Tom. I'd like to do that very much. I mean, after all, she must be getting on quite a bit by now. Aren't we all? <laughs> Some more than other. <laughs> well, actually, your tale of the Cockstain reminds me that in your previous exploring books, you refer to myths and legends pertaining to the area. Did you come across any other legends or folk tales on your travels that you'd like to tell us about? Oh, did I, but Absolutely. Many, many, many. Quite a lot, actually. Uh, but let me tell you the one about Guinevere. As a matter of fact, this tale comes from one of the detours on off the route. In the cemetery in Meagle, there is a grassy hump known as Vanora's Mound. A little plaque points out that it is Guinevere's grave, no less. The story goes that she was held captive by the Pictish king Mordred in his fortress on Barry Hill, near Aelith, which I also visit, by the way, you know, also off the route. And it's a very charming place it is, too. You should miss it. Anyway, in an attempt to cover up her identity, Mordred changed her name to Fanora. Some sources say that Mordred was none other than King Arthur's son. Some say he was his nephew, while still others say he was the product of an incestuous liaison between Arthur and his half-sister Morgoth, Queen of Orkney. Whatever his parentage may be, Mordred is credited with betraying Arthur, who is on his way to Rome, preparatory to going on a crusade. Not just by making love to the Queen, but by revealing Guinevere's affair with Lancelot, he managed to spark off a feud between them, whereby he hoped to depose Arthur and seize the crown. In the end, some say Arthur killed Mordred, some say it was the other way about, while a third version has it that they managed to kill each other. That story should satisfy everybody. 
Anyway, when Venora, or Guinevere, was released, far from being overjoyed to see her again, Arthur accused her of infidelity and sentenced her to death. But no ordinary death. She was put in the pit and pulled apart by starving dogs, the Pictish punishment for an adulterous woman. What the dogs didn't eat is buried under the mound. Another version of the tale is that Guinevere was a willing captive of Mordred and it was the local people who put her to death, morally outraged by her scandalous behaviour. Not only that, as he cast her bits into her grave, they heaped curses upon her. To this day, it is said that if a virgin walks over the mound, she will be sterile. A lot of nonsense, of course, but who, if she would like to be a mother, is brave enough to put it to the test? Another myth with the same sort of resonances concerns King Fingal. Once upon a time, so the legend says, there was a mad wild boar on the rampage in Glenshee, killing both folk and livestock. King Fingal had a cunning plan, however. He ordered his right-hand man, Dermot, to dispatch the boar. A handsome man was he, with mighty muscles. A bit of a medieval babe-bagnet, in fact. Fingal's queen was his number one fan. She was having an affair with him, which is why her husband's plan was so cunning. At the very least, it put Dermot at some distance from the Queen, and with a bit of luck, so he hoped, the boar might gore him. Dermot was wounded, but managed to kill the boar, and as evidence, bore the head back to Fingal. Fingal saw to it that Dermot was denied any treatment for his wounds, and he died as a result. Double whammy to Fingal, so you might think. Wrong. It was a hollow victory. Grief-stricken at the loss of her lover, the Queen committed suicide. I could go on. That's just a flavour of the folk tales, but what I'd like to do instead is tell you about some of the ghost stories that I came across. Every castle should have a ghost. But I'll confine myself to telling you about two from Braemar Castle. In the 19th century, a honeymoon couple rented the castle to spend their wedding night. In the morning, the bride awoke to find no husband by her side. She somehow leapt to the conclusion that he had deserted her, and without more ado, she leapt from the highest turret and dashed her brains out on the ground below. A ghostly woman in a nightdress has sometimes been seen, but the good news is, if you're a bit weary of ghosts, she is selective. She only reveals herself to newlyweds. Most bookily, John Farquharson, the third Laird of Inverie, a.k.a. the Black Colonel, has appeared in certain rooms. He had a very interesting life, and I explain why he's called Black in the book. Anyway, the shape of his body has been seen on the four-poster bed, proof, if any were needed, that even ghosts get tired of haunting and need to lie down for a rest from time to time. And while you are there, see if you can detect the smell of tobacco smoke on the air. If 
you do. It has to be him, as smoking is not allowed in the castle. He's either just left the room, or, if it's pretty strong, he's there now, puffing away, watching you. So, David, I have to ask, what advice would you like to offer anyone who's planning to visit the snow roads and see all of the attractions for themselves? Oh, just do it. Just do it. And at the same time, be prepared to deviate from it. As I say in, in, in the book, it's, it's a road. It's not a railroad. You don't have to stick to it. Absolutely. You know, what I like most about writing these exploring books, well, I'm going to tell you anyway, it's made me get out and about and explore my own country in a way and in a depth I was too lazy to do before. Now, let me tell you a story. We used to live near Dumfries and every Saturday in life we came into town for the weekly shop. There used to be a car park opposite Burns's house. And you won't believe this, you really won't. We never ever visited, not once in all the time we were there. We had to make a special journey back all the way from central Scotland just to visit it. And I don't mean for the purposes of writing the SWC book either, although of course we revisited it again then. No, what, what I'm saying is this, this coronavirus thing and the curtailment of foreign travel has given us an opportunity to explore what is on our doorstep, on our backyard. Don't, don't be like me. Don't think like I did. Oh, I'll do it someday. As I found out, someday turns out to be many, many, many days in the future and maybe never. You can't predict the future. You might get run over by a bus, despite your best intentions. No. So what I'm saying is, take this chance to do it now and do the detours as well. I would certainly recommend them, especially to visit the Meagle Stone Museum. But then I realise old carved stones may not be your thing. However, if you are interested in such things, and castles and such like, my modestly propose you read my little book before you go and or take it with you. Well David thank you very much for having taken the time to talk to us about your book today. I must say I thoroughly enjoyed it and found it to be full of many interesting and often very unexpected facts many of which of course are illustrated in the 124 colour photographs most of which you took yourself on the route. Yes well I must say Tom I'm very impressed with the product you know it's um, I think it looks apart well it's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you today David exploring the snow roads is available to buy from all good online retailers and independent booksellers worldwide thank you very much for joining us today I hope that you'll tune in again soon thank you Tom nice to talk to you again
you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.